0: Wikipedia is an online encyclopedia, which is considered now to be uh, just as legitimate as any of our hard hard copy encyclopedias in the past. Students uh, have been known to type in a historical figure uh, for a last minute paper they need to write. Of course, I never did that. But um, Wikipedia is a source that uh, people go to as their encyclopedia now exclusively uh, compared to the old um, hard copies. You might search for Julius Caesar and write a report on him. Or you could type in Julius Nam, and here's what you would find. Julius Nam is an assistant professor of religion at Loma Linda University School of Religion in California and a commissioned minister of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He teaches Adventist history and theology. He is active in the American Academy of Religion, Adventist Society for Religious Studies, and the Association of Seventh-day Adventist Historians. He blogs or writes uh, articles periodically at what was formerly known as ProgressiveAdventism.com and is now known as AdventistExpressions.com and I can tell you personally it's one of the most visited sites in Adventism. Nam received a BA in religion from Andrews University in 1990 followed by an MA in systematic theology from the same school. He served as a church pastor in Korea, Michigan, and California. He married Iris Choi in 1993, and they have two sons, Sherwin and Ansel. From 2001 to 2005, he was the editor of Compass, a monthly magazine for Korean Adventist youth in North America. He taught at Pacific Union College for three years, teaching a broad range of Christian subjects, And in 2005, he received his Ph.D. in Christian History Adventist Studies from Andrews University. What the Wikipedia article won't tell you is how much he is loved by any student that comes into contact with him. He's so humble and kind, and he just has a way of facilitating unbelievable discussion and dialogue, as is evidenced by his blog and uh, the Friday night uh, meetings that probably some people that I see in the audience here today have, uh, have come to and have um, just n- appreciated the warmness and hospitality that he and Iris have shared. Uh, he spoke at my graduation. He was my teacher um, at PUC, and uh, he's also a Chicago Cubs and Bears and, and Bulls fan, I think, too. So it's my pleasure um, to introduce Dr. Julius Nam, my friend, and teacher and mentor.
1: Thank you, Dustin. That was kind of nice. <laughs> but I did not write that Wikipedia entry. I want you to know that. <laughs> someone that I don't know. It's, it was flattering, but it's kind of weird and awkward. <laughs> and outright embarrassing when it's read at church. <laughs> Have you been to Mammoth? Yeah, for skiing, yeah. Uh, I went there for the first and last time in 2004, December 2004. Uh, I was invited by a church group to come speak, and uh, we went, and we had a, a great time, mostly, until I fell forward <laughs> on my snowboarding and has, hasn't snowboarded since. <laughs> you know, when you go past 30 and you're trying to approach 40, you, so, somehow fear has Stronger hold on youth, <laughs> so they say. But, uh, <laughs> uh, so we were there at Mammoth, and uh, we kind of got sick of the food was being cooked at the at this, by the church group. So our family said, "Oh, let's let's go out and eat out this evening." And so we went to the local KFC. <laughs> if you you know. Good Adventist and you've never been to that, it's actually Kentucky Fried Chicken. (laughs) We're actually, uh, at that time at least, all of us were lacto-ovo vegetarians. Our first son uh, has gone astray since, but it's okay, we still love him. (laughs) We went there, and so like good uh, lacto-ovo vegetarians, we ordered what? Potato wedges, corn on the cob, coleslaw, and best of all, Biscuits. Yeah, yeah we, don't mind, we, we don't ask what oil they use, but, you know, biscuits <laughs> with strawberry jam. <laughs> um, um, um. So we were enjoying a feast of all of those things at KFC and not really, you know, wondering about what else was going on. And we did notice that it was kind of empty. But it was okay, we were enjoying our food. And someone else came in, they, they came to the uh, cashier and started ordering buckets of this and wings of that and nuggets of what, whatever. And the response that the cashier gave just surprised all of us, especially the guy who was ordering. She said, we ran out of chicken. <laughs> How can KFC function without chicken? <laughs> Kentucky fried, fried chicken? No, Kentucky fried chicken. So what's going on here? And I said, aha, here's a il- sermon illustration to be used later. So I just used it. <laughs> <laughs> so how does this relate with everything? As I'm forcing the connection. Uh, well, for Kentucky Fried Chicken, I mean, what is Kentucky Fried Chicken? What is KFC without chicken? Can you imagine it? They said it has snowed so much that the truck couldn't get up here. So all we have is biscuits and corn and all of of that. So they have to come back the next day to get chicken. What is KFC without chicken? Chicken really defines KFC. Chicken is at the heart and core and soul of KFC. It is the essence of Kentucky Fried Chicken. What lies at the essence of your community? What lies at the essence of the Adventist definition of itself? This month you're pondering upon the question of the remnant, and indeed the question of the remnant has been at the heart and soul and core and essence of what it means to be Adventist. Some of you love it, others have questions about it, yet others are secretly reviling the concept, baby. What is the remnant? What is it all about? We're not the only ones who've actually called ourselves part of God's remnant. All the way back in the first century, you had a group of people called themselves, who called themselves the Essenes, who removed themselves from society, created a certain commune community in the desert, and f- felt that they had a special calling as, re- as a remnant people to live a life of utter purity and sanctity in a, de- in a way that would usher in a new millennium, a new age. The redemption of Israel was upon their shoulders. Throughout Christian history, there have been various groups who have claimed the role and the calling of the remnant. The Protestant reformers were also that. They also went to Revelation 12, verse 17, the verse that Adventists have gone to repeatedly, and have seen that, yes, the keeping of the commandment of God was a valid criterion for remnanthood And and for them, it was the second commandment, the Protestant second commandment. You know how the Catholics and Protestants number them differently. The idolatry commandment. And they said, Roman Catholic Church has all these images and icons. And quote-unquote, worship Mary and pray to saints. That's idolatry, they said. So we who do not do that are worshiping God properly. And so therefore, we qualify as the remnant. They also went to Revelation 14 and saw the three angels and have said the three angels point to our identity as a people, our mission as a community. Some of them, some of them in Geneva, said, "Oh, the first angel, the first angel talks about Martin Luther, his nailing of the thesis in uh, on Halloween, 1517." And then they said, "Oh, the second angel talks about Ulrich Zwingli, a reformer in German." Uh, part of, the Swiss, of, of Switzerland. And then they said, oh, the third angel's message, the climax of the three angel's messages is the message of John Calvin in Geneva. And it's, these are the Genevans talking. About 150 years later, you had a group of, uh, another group of Christians who felt a remnant calling to reform the church in England. They felt that there was great moral and spiritual laxity in the church. And so they wanted to live a life of greater, deeper holiness following the proper method. Wesley and his Methodists went to Revelation, went to Revelation 12 and 14, saw the three angels and said, oh, the first angel, yes, it is Luther, but actually the second angel was Calvin. And the third angel was Wesley, us. We're here, right here in Scripture. American Protestants did do the same thing uh, in the early part of the 19th century as they're trying to understand their place in, in the world, you know, the whole American idea of manifest destiny, city upon a hill, bringing the gospel uh, to the rest of the world, being, a, being that beacon. And they saw themselves as being the remnant, the American Puritans, and saw themselves having a special covenant with God and their mission as a third angel's message mission, and the remnant calling. When William Miller, you see where I'm going with this, came around, he does the same thing. First Angels, first Angel's message is the first preaching of the Advent by William Miller, 1831. You know that story? The nephew comes knocking. You like that? <laughs> <laughs> and Miller comes out from his uh, private Bible study closet into being a preacher of the gospel about the second coming. And then the second angel's message, the uh, message of the summer of 1843, the fall of Babylon message by Charles Fitch. And then the third angel's message they believed was a true midnight cry, the message from August 1844 to October 1844, the final uh, midnight cry, the seventh month movement they called it, uh, proclaiming with a loud cry the soonness of the second coming of Christ. After the Great Disappointment, there was a group of people who interpreted Revelation a little differently. They said, God has given us a special understanding about the Sabbath, a particular calling. And it is the Sabbath commandment that is lacking in the, in the world. So we're here to keep the commandments of God fully and to share and help others do the same. And we have a messenger who is among us, who points us to God, to our calling as a remnant. But all all through this, whatever you may think of the remnant, the question has been centered on who is the remnant? What constitutes the remnant? What are the criteria for the remnant? And how can I be part of that remnant? Have you asked that question? Has that question been posed to you? I thought about that myself growing up in an Adventist pastor's family, an Adventist theologian's family. Uh, I'm kind of following in my father's footsteps into being a college professor. So uh, these are the questions that I've thought about. And being in Adventist studies, I kind of have to deal with this question, the remnant. These are important questions. And yes, sometimes what I sense to be what I am con what I believe to be even more question doesn't get asked enough. I want to ask that question with you this morning by turning to the story of Moses in Exodus 32. As we try to kind of discover the core of what it means to be the remnant. If I may continue to use the metaphor, the chicken. (laughs) The chicken in this message, this remnant business. In Exodus 32, we find Moses on top of Mount Sinai in, in communion with God 40 days, 40 nights. And Scripture says no eating, no drinking, just, just utter supernatural experience for Moses. And th- during this time, beginning with chapter 20, you see the Ten Commandments, and it doesn't stop there. Th- all 12 chapters, 20 to 31, what you see is different instructions, centering primarily upon the building of the sanctuary. So the context is is the sanctuary context. What it means to worship God properly and what it means to represent and commune commune with God appropriately. At the end of of this sanctuary instruction narrative, what we find is that the people are building and worshiping a golden calf. God is not happy. In verse 9, what you see is that God is... As the narrative goes, very, very ira- irate and angry. Verse 10. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you a great nation. I'm going to leave the intricacy of the theology behind God's anger to Pastor Chris and her colleagues for the future discussion. So I'm going to avoid that very so sensitive topic. I think the clue might just be where, where God says, leave me alone. He is anticipating Moses' protest. And he indeed does protest in the next verse. In verse 11, Moses is finding, trying to find favor with God and says, Oh Lord, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and, and a mighty hand? Oh, as if God needs reminding, Moses is saying, remember what you just did? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains, to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. What's Moses doing here? Okay, calm down now, take a deep breath, God. It's almost as if Moses is the one who is taking the role of the counselor and God is the one kind of seething and you know it's, it's, there's a certain role reversal here a wonderful teaching moment i think in moses' journey in leadership at any rate moses is cajoling counseling God the next verse is even more interesting for me remember your servants Abraham Isaac and Israel to whom you swore by your own self I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever remember the covenant it's now Moses is almost getting now desperate if you really if you're really serious God oh come on it's not fair You made a promise. You promised. Your kids say that. My kids say this all the time. You promised. We have different versions of the promise. So it becomes a hermeneutical battle suddenly. Apparently, it happens in your household too. Moses is saying, you promised. And God relents. Does God ever change? Big point of debate, discussion in the Adventist church, in the evangelical circles, among Christians and beyond. Well, the Lord relents and does not bring on His people the disaster that He had threatened. As the story goes, Moses goes down, and now he gets angry. The breakage of the stone and then all the interesting, horrific things that actually happen happen. Uh, uh, an instance of ordination of the people to kill and and punish, a very uh, complex story, which, once again, I will not cover. At the end of this narrative, Moses says, okay, in verse 30, to the people, okay, I will go and do atonement for you. And he goes up to God, and Moses says, God, verse 31, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please, forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. What an amazing thing to say. First, God threatens, relents, and Moses is sort of turning the table. He, he wants a, just an utter guarantee that God would not destroy them, and in saying, you wanted to start a great nation with me? God, that's not funny. I'm not flattered. I don't want to be the father of that new nation if you destroy them destroy me i don't want to i don't want to live all happy and nice and blessed by myself my fate is inextricably tied with my people Let's just consider just for a moment where, where these people are right now. Yeah, they feel bad now since they had, they had to drink that gold stuff. I don't know what gold tastes like and, and all the horrible things. So they, they, they feel bad, but they're so stupid. They're so ignorant, so idolatrous and undeserving of what Moses does, the mercy that God grants so undeserving, and yet Moses says, my fate, my destiny lies with them and not with you alone. Here's a calling for God's remnant. All too often, the calling of the remnant has been about who is the remnant? Am I the remnant? Are we the remnant? What are the characteristics that Characteristics that we have that qualify us to be the remnant. Are we in that book? Is, that, is, is my name? Oh, remember the song? I sang it in the first peri- first uh, period. First, it's not a game. It's first service. <laughs> first service. I've been watching the Olympics too much. <laughs> uh, first uh, service. But uh, I don't know if I have the courage to sing it right now. There's so many more of you, and my wife is here. She's gonna make fun of me. <laughs> lord i care not for riches sing it will you sing with me lord is that that high hello lord i care not for riches neither silver nor gold i would make sure of heaven i would enter the in the book of thy kingdom in the book of thy kingdom With its pages so fair... Tell me, Jesus. Tell me, Jesus, my Savior, Is my name written there? Is my name written there? On the page white and fair, In the book of thy kingdom, Is my name written there? It's kind of odd. Isn't it kind of singing against the text, sort of, kind of? It's a beautiful hymn that I would continue to sing. There's nothing wrong with the hymn, except if that centrally defines our religious, spiritual walk. Is my name written there? I live with fear that my name might not be there. I'm going to do all I can to be in that book. And even if the rest of the world isn't there, I want to be there. Heaven is a wonderful place, filled with glory and grace. I want to see my Father, but it can't just be my Father's face. I want to see you there too. If there's a mirror in heaven, I want to see me, yes. But it cannot just be. Just be God. Because God so loved the world that He gave everything and became nothing so that you and I may be filled and the remnant is called to be the same. It's not about whether my name is in the books or not. It's how can I live a life of sacrifice and service and uh, Christ-like self-abnegation so that I can witness to the greatness, the awesomeness, and the wonder of His love. The remnant, being a remnant, being a remnant church and being a remnant people from the story of what Moses' story illustrates, and Moses' story is not the only story in the Bible. You have Various prayers, various encounters, Abraham, Daniel, and of course the life of Jesus, where you have these amazing examples of great people of God choosing to live a life of great self-denying service. The word remnant that we've been talking about, the concept, it's throughout the Bible, but Adventists have gone to Revelation 12 and 14 that we've gone to this morning, and That's where I want to return for a moment. The two descriptors of the remnant in in, in Revelation 12 talks about keeping of the commandments and having the uh, testimony of Jesus and having the faith of Jesus. What does it mean to bear the testimony? Elsewhere in the book, it talks about the testimony of Jesus being the spirit of prophecy. If you think about the two words, testimony and tes- testimony and prophecy, these are nouns that are based on verbs, testify and uh, prophesy. And these two verbs are transitive. Is that right? Having objects, these are relational. They, they have directionality in them. You cannot just testify. I suppose you, if you, if you have split personality, you could testify to yourself, but uh, you testify to others. Prophecy is always in the context of a community. You don't self-prophesy. You prophesy to a community, to the world. And it's about Jesus. And the dominant metaphor, dominant characteristic of Jesus that we find in the book of Revelation is about Jesus, the slain lamb, who conquers evil, who is victorious over oppression, over the beasts through his sacrifice. It's an interesting paradox, isn't it? Victory through becoming nothing. Through peace. Through nonviolence. That's what the, the remnant, I believe, is called to testify. That amazing principle and life ethic of sacrifice, peace, and faithful advocacy of the principles of the kingdom in this world. Adventists, who, are, who call themselves or ourselves Adventists. And typically the word Adventist refers to our deep yearning for the second coming. And it is a very inter- integral part of our identity. But I want to pause for a moment and consider a different dimension to the very same word. Being an Adventist cannot only mean that we are waiting for the second coming. It has to also equally mean Bringing the kingdom that has already come into this world, and sharing it with the people who are in search of it and are yearning for it. In that sense, we're both Adventists and also Adventizers. If you go to the Book of Acts, and, and correct me if if I if I miss something. But in my recent study of the book of Acts, looking at all the sermons in the book of Acts, I was struck by something very, very interesting. What I was struck by is that there is not a single sermon on the second coming. As Christianity was being established, Every single message that is spread is about Christ who has come and the kingdom that he has planted and the principles and the, and the grace and the reconciliation and the peace and joy, the fullness of life that is available to us right here and right now as we wait for the second coming. There is just one phrase that talks about the judgment that is coming. Beyond that, it's all about Christ who came and opened a new way of living. That's what, they, uh, that's what really... was burning in their hearts. That's what they were passionate about, these 12 apostles and more. Adventism arose in the mid-19th century with great ideas, including the remnant, ideas that uh, have really shaped a a people to become an empowering and powerful community. Nineteenth-century Adventism had a lot of ideals going, and they were very active in bringing the kingdom to the world. Early Adventists were very much uh, active in the cause for abolition. Very much active, as as we all know, in the cause for public health. It wasn't just for our well-being, so that eventually, 160 years later, we'll be in National Geographic. (laughs) that it would be about, indeed, bringing health and wholeness to the world. Adventism was indeed uh, very active in elevating the place of women in society, the rightful place. Adventism was active in championing religious liberty, the rights of minorities, objecting, giving, having room for conscientious objection in this world, critiquing sharply the imperialism of its own country, the United States. Of America. That's very clear in the 1890s when A.T. Jones, one of the uh, early leaders of Adventism, uh, riding sharply against America's war with Mexico. Very sharply. Adventism has many treasures, but these treasures must continue to have meaning in the real world in ways that truly transform the individual lives of the people of the world. We have great teachings. The sanctuary, I don't know what you think of the sanctuary, but I love the sanctuary teaching for, the, for, for what it says and especially the potential that it has for today and tomorrow. At the heart of the sanctuary teaching is, a, is, is the wonderful meaning of advocacy and reconciliation. We may disagree on particular interpretations of Daniel 8.14 and Hebrews 8 and 9 and all of that, but if our interpretations do not make us a people who bring real advocacy and real reconciliation in the world, our doctrine means nothing to the world. If our teaching of the Sabbath, as convicted as we feel about the rightness of the day, does not bring restoration, does not bring liberation as it did to the first listeners of the fourth commandment, having been slaves for hundreds of years. If it does not bring restoration of the environment the way it was intended to in the animal kingdom, in the land, if the Sabbath does not lead us to be champions of wholeness and restoration and liberation, if it does not lead us to be champions against human trafficking that is going on, more than ever, 25 million in the world, more than in the 19th century. If, if, if we, it does not make us become transformative agents as a people of the Sabbath, what good is being worshipers on the right day? Our precious, precious teaching on the unity of human nature and the implications for human wholeness if it does not lead us to be in whole relationships, if it does not lead us to indeed be truly concerned with the well-being of those who live around us, those who work for us, whether legally or not so legally, then what good is it to believe that we enter into an unconscious state after we die. We have a wonderful message, series of messages in the gift of prophecy found in the ministry of Sister White. If her teachings and the fact that God gifts with a prophetic gift to a community, if if there is no continuation of that prophetic fervor to speak for God to speak against injustice in the world. If we do not have the courage to be that people, what good is it to have the spirit of prophecy? Somewhere along the way, perhaps, you may have lost that prophetic remnant edge as we now enter, have entered fully into our community's third century. There are many pressing issues that confront us globally in the environment. Poverty is, remains a powerfully vexing, troubling issue. 1.3 billion live on just $1 a day. It's just unfathomable for us, isn't it? Just by getting here, getting to this place, we've spent a couple of dollars, or maybe 4 or $5, with <laughs> the gas prices the way they are. Yeah. As we've been worshiping here the last hour, 200 to 300 children have died of either malaria or unsafe water. Well, what is our calling? What is our responsibility? Do you know, do you know Uncle Ben from Spider-Man? <laughs> that memorable quote that is that speaks the truth, with great power comes You do watch movies. (laughs) With great power comes great responsibility. God has given this community, you and me, incredible power, the power of the gospel, and the means with which we live our lives. What is our responsibility to the world as a people of the Sabbath, as a remnant people? We look more closely. We see communities that surround us, Loma Linda University, I work for Loma Linda, Over, well, you heard that, and many of you do too. So I speak carefully and, what's the word, reverently. <laughs> Loma Linda has, well, the university, Adventists have been in Loma Linda the last 100 years. We've celebrated it. But in many ways, we've allowed some of the social diseases to fester right in our neighborhood, right around us. We have a responsibility, a remnant responsibility. I know that we're not going to make everything perfect. That's not the point. What is our calling? What is our direction of our testimony and prophecy? You know, Adventist institutions are known for being Demanding in sacrifice when it comes to benefits and salary. A uh, different way of putting the stark truth that they pay less. <laughs> and, the, and the rationale that's given, and I'm not even talking about you know, my boss, I think he was here first period. It's not about my salary or anything like that. It's, it's about, we've used the rationale of asking people to sacrifice for mission. And I think that's a very valid uh, rationale but somewhere along the way Adventist institutions and Adventist employers have just become bad employers where every I haven't been to all around the world but there I hear too many stories I'm sure you have too of grievances what they consider to be injustices about the institution you can pay people less but you can still be a good employer that's true for Adventist individuals as well. Wouldn't it be great if people said, you know, look for an Adventist employer. Look for an Adventist institution to work in because they, pay, they may pay you a few thousand dollars less over the year or whatever, but you have a great time. You really are minister. Menace- they care for you. It really hits. I mean, if, you if, if you're an employer, I'm considering at least a third of you to be in a position of super, supervision or employ, being an employer or whatever. Uh, God has given you a remnant calling to treat people with dignity and treat people very, very well. The money that you bargain for with your gardener and save, which we are so willing to just spend in one afternoon. Going to Six Flags or going out to watch a movie or, or eat means two days' meals for some of these friends and neighbors of ours. It's a real issue. What is our remnant calling to be a certain kind of neighbor, a certain kind of employer, a certain kind of a colleague? These are some real issues that f- face us. No easy solutions. I speak pompously and, 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 and loud, but I struggle with this. What I know, to be clear, is that God has given us a calling to extend his kingdom. Even if it means to say, God, highlight my name and press Control X. Or if you're an Apple user like me, I know Dustin is, it would be Apple X, which would be the much more efficient way. <laughs> yes, yeah, I can't help my... Apple snobbism, <laughs> whatever, whatever you press, whatever you ask. God, go. I'd rather that. I'd rather just... I, I want to follow the example of Jesus. Because in the end, that is the sure way to salvation. We may have differences in theology and approaches. I know we do. But in the story of the Good Samaritan, what I see is that The priest and the Levite, they had right theology. They were orthodox in their doctrines. But this Samaritan who denied the whole prophets and writings barely clung onto the Pentateuch, because that's what Samaritans were, and their interpretation of the Pentateuch, by Christian standards, was really messed up. But this guy with faulty theology wins the gold medal in the story. What's up with that? What's up with that? Because somewhere along the way, the right thinking, proper exegesis, did not lead to right living. But it did for the Samaritan. A great lesson for you and me. In the end, God will be asking, have you seen me in the people who have surrounded you? If you're not able to see Christ in the ignorant, blasphemous, idolatrous, ungrateful, sinful people in the world. When we indeed get to heaven, if we do, we might be very, very lonely, and God does not want that. May that calling to be a remnant, a true remnant, beyond perhaps of our imagination, be the calling that you and I accept this morning, throughout this week. Amen.
2: Are you blessed, church? Do you have something to think about this week? Thank you, Julius, for bringing that to us. If you've come this morning to pray, I just want to remind you, there will be people from the prayer team. Would you like to pray about something you've thought about this morning, concern you have in your personal life with your family, your work? People from the prayer team will be down front here and one in the back of the sanctuary. Uh, Please take advantage of a community that wants to pray with you today. Uh, Come next week, would you? John Pauline will close our camp meeting month for us, and I expect you to leave that day also with something new in your heart. So be anticipating that this week. And now, Father, God of heaven and God of earth, I ask you dismiss us with the courage to release our salvation status to you. Dismiss us today with a renewed concern instead For people in this world who have never heard of the book of life, who would never even dream that their name should be written there, dismiss us with that concern through the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus we pray and the church can say, Amen.